welcome to Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. As you can see here behind me, I am not in the studio today. I'm actually on the road getting ready to go to a witness training here in beautiful Denver. I'm looking out. I can, I can see the, the mountains, got a perfect view, um, but I'm not going to head out until I talk to this gentleman who I have on with me today. Um, I have Jim Feeney from Dykema in Detroit. Jim, how are you? Fine, Steve. How are you? I'm excellent. You know, and being a, a, a Michigan born and raised, I mean, obviously, Dykema has a very good rep, uh, reputation for being, you know, a top tier law firm. But actually, how I came to know about you actually was a little bit different, right? You, uh, CBN published their top 10 most impressive defense verdicts of 2021. And it just so happened that it was a case you worked on, right? It's the Kia yeah. versus Perry, or excuse me, Perry versus the Kia Motors, correct? Correct. And that was in Orange County, California. And I, I do a lot of work in California. So, and, and for those people who don't know about the case, can you kind of give us the 30,000 foot view of what the case was about? Sure. So the, the, um, there are two ways to do this. Let me start with the, with the basic uh, defect uh, claim. The case was about um, an injury, a very serious brain injury that had occurred to the plaintiff, who was a 21 year old. Uh, uh, woman, a uh, young woman named Kamaya Perry. She received the injury in an automobile accident. She blamed it on the restraint system, the seatbelt system, the airbag system. Basically, they said that the, the, then the experts that were hired said that the restraint system did not perform the way it was intended to perform, didn't design, wasn't, wasn't designed properly, and she received a very serious brain injury. Um, the accident that produced this injury, which she uh, experienced this injury, was an accident that occurred in Southern California uh, about two years ago in April of 2019, or I guess three years now. Uh, her brother was driving the vehicle, the brother was 17. He tried to make uh, a U-turn in a divided highway from lane number two, so the middle lane. He didn't realize or wasn't aware of the fact that a car was coming up behind him on the outside in the number one lane. And so as he made the U-turn, the car hit him, hit him in the side. Uh, so there was a pretty serious side impact followed by a half turn roll. So there was a side impact followed by a roll. He was uninjured. The driver was uninjured. His sister uh, was the plaintiff and she received this brain injury as a right front seat passenger. Those were the basic facts of the accident. And, and the case is, is currently on appeal, correct? Correct. Okay. So, you know, I, I want to ask you some questions about it, but obviously I want to be mindful of, of that fact and, and not dig too deep. But, you know, I definitely want to especially get for our listeners to understand kind of, you know, praise these defense verdicts and then also dig deeper into them and find out what it is that you did that was successful. So really, my first question was, is, you know, what was your approach in this case? Meaning, you know, when you looked at it, what was really the main points that you felt like you really had to deliver and get the jurors to understand? Well, it was a very interesting case. And I'm sure, Steve, in your work, you've seen this on more than a few occasions where you're dealing with an automotive product liability case. But you had the driver in this case, the 17-year-old driver who actually caused the accident uh, and was closer to the impact. At the, uh, that occurred here, uh, he had a seatbelt that 
whose pretensioner, and we can talk about what a pretensioner is, worked, fired, so snugged him into the seat, and he had his driver's side airbags, which deployed in this accident. And he walked away from the accident without a scratch. His sister, who was farther away from the impact at the time of the impact, uh, had a, a seatbelt loose pretensioner did not deploy, didn't work. And of course, none of the airbags because of her position deployed. She winds up with a very serious brain injury. So from our perspective, it was pretty clear to us that the plaintiff was gonna present this as a way of essentially saying, brother was fine. He had a much more severe impact. She came out very badly injured. What's the difference? And the difference they would say was the difference in the performance of the restraint system. And that we felt confident that that was the way they were gonna present it. So our response, our job was to try to understand that and diffuse that and explain to the jury from the beginning that just because she was seriously injured and her system performed differently than his didn't mean that the system was defective. That was point number one. And point number two, at part and parcel of that was to really explain in a very simple way how she actually received the injury because we had a side impact followed by a rollover. A lot going on inside that vehicle. So there's a lot of testimony and a lot of expert uh, disagreement as to what actually happened inside that vehicle to produce her injury. Those were the two big issues, big picture issues that we really, we knew we had to address in a way that was consistent and uh, persuasive for the jury. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of times on these big types of cases, right, we get called in to, to do either focus groups or mock trials or any of that. Did you guys do any sort of pretrial research on this case at all? Yes. Okay. And, and what did you, what did you learn from that research that you were able to actually use as you went forward in trial? Well, I don't need to tell you that to me, I mean, I use my, I do mock trial works all the time. And I, to me, what I get out of it typically is um, what resonates, what themes can you develop? Um, can you present themes in a way that jurors can understand them? When you watch the deliberations afterwards, are they actually articulating the arguments you make? Are jurors there using your points in a way that is favorable to you? Now, the worst outcome would be that they fully understood your arguments and they're going the other way in the deliberations, right? That's, that's probably the worst of all the days. But in our case, what we try to do, knowing what we knew is to be the big issues in the case, what we tried to do was we experimented with different ways to to present the complexity of the accident as well as the complexity of the design system. So we used different exhibits, we used, we used snippets of testimony, we used articles. We tried a lot of different combinations of evidence that we thought ultimately gave us the best chance to present our themes to the jury. That's what we tried to do and that's how we used it. So a lot of demonstratives, we used demonstratives in the mock work to uh, explore different ways to present the issues. Did you do more than one mock? It's not like you were saying you were, you were experimenting with things. Did you do multiple mocks to try to- We did, you know? we did, we did two and we did two, I would say full blown ones. And then there were, I mean, there was, uh, there was other research that we did, uh, but not at the level of a full blown all day. I gotcha. So did you find then that some of the stuff that you were doing, like you thought was, 
going to be the the main piece of evidence or a strong piece of evidence when you found from the mock jurors where they just didn't care or didn't put as much weight into it as you initially thought so that it caused you to kind of shift gears and go a different way? Well, there was one thing in particular that was really pretty interesting. The answer is yes. Uh, and, 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 and I think I can put it this way. Obviously, the accident facts, it was it was not reasonable to dispute. No one would dispute the fact that the 17-year-old young man had caused this accident. Uh, uh, U-turn directly in front of a vehicle coming up behind it. I mean, there's really no debate about it. No one, and no one really challenged that. One of the things we learned in the mock, however, which I was really confirmed by the uh, by the uh, the jury outcome was that uh, the jurors in general were far less likely to blame the 17-year-old in causing the accident than they were the parents that allowed them to drive. These folks lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and they were on their way to Easter Sunday brunch at the grandmother's house in San Bernardino County, California. So they left at midnight in, from Phoenix to drive to their grandmother's house. The accident happened at 6.15 in the morning. They were about a half hour from grandma's house. The jurors, both in the mock exercise and our actual case, definitely had questions about the decision-making of the parents. The parents had left the day before, uh, Kamaya had to work that night, so she couldn't leave until, you know, later in the evening or the next day. And the plan always was that the 17-year-old was going to drive all night long through the desert under circumstances that he had never done before uh, to get to grandma's house. That was a really interesting, um, that was a really interesting finding. And it uh, turned out to be highly accurate in terms of the jury, the actual trial. Yeah, that's always those are, the, those are the kinds of things that happen in mock trials, don't they? Yeah, and and it's funny as that's I mean that's why that's why you do them because as I always say it's it's better to find out then kind of the the thoughts of the jurors than find out after right when you get maybe you get hit for a big verdict and then you talk to jurors afterwards and, and they're telling you all the the bad things about the case or all the interesting things that you never thought about you know after the fact is not when you want to find out about them right. Oh. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jim, one of the things I found interesting while watching the trial proceedings is in closing is you didn't address damages. You didn't talk about damages and you, you didn't even really offer up any alternative damages number. Uh, is that is that a common practice that you have? Because I know this is one of those contentious things that people have different <laughs> opinions on how to address damages. Well, it's it's common and it's not common. In other words, I think it very much depends on a case. Big picture. If you're trying a case where uh, you've either admitted liability or you've got a, you know, you, it is reasonable to believe, more than just reasonable to believe that there's probably gonna be a liability verdict. I think it's, and, and you would ask yourself the question, well, why are you trying a case? Well, you're probably trying a case because there is a significant disagreement on the value of the case uh, from a verdict potential standpoint. That's a case where I will always anchor I mean, I'll always have an alternative number, whether it's a commercial case or a product liability case, I will always present an alternative and it will be based upon evidence that we've developed at trial. In this particular case, we felt that we had a very good 
liability defense. Obviously, the plaintiff completely disagreed with this and thought they had a very strong case. But um, we spent a lot of time, Steve, on damages during the trial. There were issues about the extent of Kamaya's recovery, what her current status was. Um, her retained experts said one thing but the medical records at the uh, rehab institutes that she had treated at for quite a while said something different. So there was a lot of testimony about that kind of disparity between what the retained experts were saying and what the, the, the treaters were saying. And there was also a fair, fair amount of extensive cross-examination that we did on the life care plan and some of the assumptions that were used. So there was evidence in the record that if the jury wanted to get into that, they could absolutely do it. But at the end of the day, I just, there was a lot to cover on liability. And I just did not want to spend any of my time dealing with damages. So in this particular case, I just didn't do it, but I certainly have done it and would do it under the right circumstance. Um, uh, but I agree with you. It's definitely, you think long and hard before you do it. That's yeah. Sure. And I, like I said, I definitely think that when we when we talk with attorneys, it's always do I or don't I? And, and sometimes, like you said, it, we, all, we we suggest that there it's a zero. And I know for some attorneys, it causes a lot of causes a lot of stress and anxious, you know, anxiety to, to say zero or vice versa. Right. Well, I want to say zero. And we're saying you probably better offer up something. So at least to have an anchor number. So uh, that's a good point that you bring up as far as it being a case by case basis and, and doing an analysis kind of when it works and when it doesn't. Well, and in my own, my own experience and jurors, you know, I've, this hasn't happened to me, but jurors have said, I mean, I've read and I'm aware of other cases where jurors in explaining a very, very big number will oftentimes be quoted as saying, well, that's what they asked for. And nobody said otherwise. And so we thought that was probably reasonable. Yep. I, I've seen that. I, I was just doing a, uh, I was out doing a mock trial last week and it's exactly what, what we heard from jurors is, Right. We didn't have anything else to go off of. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly right. So one of the other things I noticed about this case, this was one of those, it was a trial, you know, post-COVID era, you know, just recently. And I was kind of curious, kind of, what is that like doing a trial uh, in California post-COVID? Terrible. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was good and bad. What was terrible about it was that, first of all, the rules changed about halfway through the trial, but. What was really terrible about it was the following. Number one, because of social distancing requirements, we had to do four separate voir dires. So we had, because we could only put a panel of 15 people in the courtroom at one time. So we had to do four separate voir dires. Because of the court schedule, we were limited in the number of days per week that we had to do this. Jury selection therefore extended over a month. And, and we, in, with each panel, we would qualify each panel for cause, dismiss them, and then move on to the next panel. Do the same thing, dismiss them, move on to the, until we finally built to the right number of jurors, which I think was you know 27 or 28 jurors. And uh, so it was a very extended process. Everybody was in a mask. Uh, so lawyers were in masks, jurors were in masks. They weren't even allowed to put their masks down so that you could see their face. Uh, so you have no facial recognition. Um, and the easiest way I can say this is that I, I usually feel very connected during jury selection to the panel 
I feel very connected in opening statement. I felt, I felt very disconnected in this experience. I didn't feel like I really uh, was making the kind of connection with jurors in openings and in jury selection that I typically do. And that was a problem. Fortunately, uh, they, they eliminated the mask requirement uh, about a week into the trial. So by the, for most of the proofs, we, were, we didn't have to wear masks when we were examining witnesses and there, were no, there was no masking for, for uh, closing arguments. But jurors could still socially distance if they wanted to, and most of them did. So we had jurors spread out all over the court. That's what I thought, because obviously the way that the video shot, it was shot kind of right at you, right at the mm -hmm. podium and stuff. But I could see you as you were talking working a crowd, but I could see as you were drifting way off to the side, I assumed that there must have been jurors scattered all about. There were, and there were, we had, we had TVs, you know, we had a big TV back in the uh, gallery, but for jurors that were way over on the, what would have been the left side of the courtroom, the, the TV was on the right side and there was another big screen up front. You know, they struggled with documents that were shown on that screen. They would struggle with being able to see them. Eventually for closing argument, the judge relented and made everybody move either into the box or on one side of the courtroom. That at least put everybody sort of in front of you, but again, spread out. But it, yeah. I, it's not, I've got a trial next month in uh, West Virginia, and right now they're still under pretty strict um, COVID requirements. So as of right now, we're, we're going to be facing the same kind of setup for that trial, which I hope changes by the time we start. Yeah, I think to your point, right, being able to see jurors' faces and then being able to connect with them, right, is, is important to building rapport and getting, from a jury selection standpoint, too, getting an understanding of how, you know, they feel towards you and whether or not they're going to be good or bad jurors, right? Uh, I, it was a challenge, for sure. Yeah. You know, I want to switch gears a, a little bit. You know, this, this case was involving a traumatic brain injury, you know, and a lot of times, you know, I work on traumatic brain injury cases. And I'm sure you do plenty of them as well. And, and they're difficult types of cases, correct? They are very difficult. Uh, typically, huge dollars involved from an exposure standpoint. The injuries themselves are very complex. The mechanism of injury, how this happens, very complex. Um, in this case, there was a lot of medical evidence of serious injury. So that part of it wasn't part of that of our case, but I've tried brain injury cases where there was significant debate about whether and to what extent there was in fact a brain injury. So, you know. Right, and that's probably one of the most difficult parts of trying a traumatic brain injury case, right? Is, is that argument about whether or not, you know, whether or not there was a traumatic brain injury, the extent of the traumatic brain injury, what factors go into it, you know, the Glasgow coma score, all these different things that, that you have to get introduced and kind of how subjective those things are, right? Those are all difficult aspects of the, of a case. It's very, very difficult to deal with. And, and in this case, you had, you had a situation where the plaintiff went to institutional daycare every day for a year. She was admitted to a program in Arizona. So she commuted from her home to this program for essentially 12 months. And then was at that, after that, she was full-time in the custody of her parents for a gap period then up to trial of about four or five months. So 
there was a period of time where there was lots of information about her. And then there was a period of time, most recently, where there was not very much information about her, and except from the parents. So the parents telling the story uh, during that period of time became a very important piece of the uh, piece of the puzzle. So it was it was very challenging. It was very very challenging uh, to uh, to deal with for sure. And I think the other the other part that's challenging is you 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 got the sympathy factor right. Is you have this person who they have all the pictures of look at how they were before and then look how they are now. Their life's been destroyed. It'll never be the same. I think that's another aspect you have to deal with, right? Is is just how sympathetic jurors are. Right. And here you had a very beautiful young woman who was 21 years old at the time of the accident. She uh, aspired to be a, uh, a, uh, a singer, a professional singer. She had actually released uh, her own CD album. Uh, they played a number of uh, clips from the album of her performing. She had video uh, uh, presentations that she had made. And, uh, and the picture that she presented at trial was not this energetic, vivacious, uh, very, very active, uh, beautiful young woman, but it was someone who um, appeared to be, um, I would say, depressed. But even you know, much more than that, it was it was it was uh, difficulty tracking questions, uh, responding in a way that didn't seem to uh, be completely to line up with the question that was asked. I mean, so there was a. You know, they did a very effective job, the plaintiff's lawyers did, in presenting a different, very different image of Kamaya in the courtroom as opposed to the before picture. And as you said, that's, I mean, that's, that is difficult to deal with because it's, you know, it's sympathetic. And of course, in jury selection, I spent a lot of time on that. I mean, I preview that evidence and, and press people on how they feel about being able to listen to that, deal with it, be objective at the end. And, uh, but you know, no matter what people say in the jury selection, until they actually sit there and see it, it's a different story. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Did I mean, did, did you harp on that or at least mention many times kind of throughout the trial? I know a common tactic is to, you know, during closings and openings to talk about not letting sympathy and bias prejudice you. And that, did you have to really feel like you focused on that? I, I do focus on that. I mean, I, you know, and I, in, in jury selection, Steve, I, I, um, I, I think we do, our team does a really good job of identifying legitimate for cause challenges and exercising that uh, opportunity. We had a number of, we had many cause challenges that were successfully uh, argued and granted. And I think that is really important to uh, jury selection in a case of this magnitude, uh, because you only get a limited number of strikes and you really need to be able to effectively challenge a lot of jurors for cause uh, in order to ultimately get uh, a jury that appears on its face to be objective and, and not predisposed. And even then, it's the luck of the draw to some extent. Yeah. And, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about jury selection because you, you've touched on it. You know, what is your approach? You've talked a little bit about it, but what is your approach to, to jury selection as far as you know, your process and, and how you how you approach the whole the whole uh, issue in the process of jury selection? Well, um, let me answer it this way. Number one, research. Uh, mock trials are invariable, are invaluable from my standpoint, 
to really get a sense um, of what might be particularly helpful to the defense side. I mean, of course, if you're a defendant defending an automobile company, you would like to seat a panel of 12 people who love corporate America and think that uh, most lawsuits are baseless and uh, can't wait to get into the jury room to quote, do the right thing. Um, that never happens and that's not going to happen. So you really need to work hard in mock research jury, uh, mock trials to develop profiles, pluses and minuses, what, seem to, what seems to be useful. But it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, subjectively uh, in the process itself, I look for people that have values uh, and they, they have um, uh, lifestyles that uh, would support um, uh, uh, a notion of right and wrong. Uh, I'm I really a big believer in that. I don't care so much about whether they're politically how people line up. It's more a matter of, of can they follow the rules when given an opportunity, regardless of what they may think about the rules. And again, easy to say, but really, really challenging to do when you're actually put to it. And so I look, to, I, look at, I look at jury selection as a process where you're attempting to put together a group of people that will work together. And, I, and honestly, I, a unifying group is something that's important to me. I mean, I try to look for people that I think are going to get along. I mean, again, in the world of what's important and what the Ultimately, in jury selection, you're always looking at who's coming up next. So it's a choice between um, uh, juror A or juror B or juror C. It's always comparative. It's always weighted. You know, it's not. You're never making these decisions in the abstract. It's always it's always situational, and it's it depends on what your alternatives are. And uh, so uh, you have to kind of keep that in mind. I think most trial lawyers that are good at this. I think they probably could have been air traffic controllers uh, because I think there's a certain amount of abstract kind of imagination that goes into this where you're sort of keeping all the puzzles, all the pieces to the puzzle up in the air and circulating. And ultimately the idea is to get, you know, the case safely landed, so. Yeah, and I think, and, and based upon what you're saying, I, I have a sense for, how, you know, how you would likely do your jury selection, but I think it's important for, for our listeners to understand, right, is I'm assuming you're the type of person who's asking these open-ended questions, who's getting jurors to talk, versus asking the closed-ended question of who agrees, yes, no, and then and then move on. Absolutely. I'm a, uh, uh, why do you think that? What do you think about that? Do you agree with juror number five and what they just said? You know, you try to develop that conversation of people all engaging with one another and, uh, uh, lawyers that cross-examine jurors <laughs> and ask them a bunch of leading questions, I find uh, don't really find out very much uh, helpful information. Uh, Open-ended questions, and of course, no script really. Listen to the answer there that is given and use that answer in formulating your next question to that person or another person. Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent point that you make, because I've seen too many attorneys who do voir dire very, very bad. And then, like you said, at the end of the day, you don't really get much of anything of, of information for your jurors. So I'm a very strong proponent as well as ask questions, dig. And I think to your point, that's how you're able to find 
the information, right? The values and how they feel about certain things is you got to ask them and you got to get them to start talking. And the other thing is that you need to, that helps you in a, a beginning to establish the rapport. I mean, I, look, I, I think, I think you need to finish jury selection with some of the jurors, some of the jurors either viewing you in a neutral way or kind of liking you and thinking that you, I don't mean this on an emotional level, but you just seem to be someone that is honest and straightforward and is not going to, uh, is not going to lead them down the garden path. And I think that's important. And I think you need to, you know, you need to develop that rapport. And I don't think you do it by standing up there following a script and asking a bunch of loaded questions to which the answer is likely going to be uh, uh, totally predictable, but also completely unhelpful in terms of really doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, and before I leave the jury selection topic, I think there's one more thing I, I want to touch on. You know, some people have their own opinions on this as well, but are you the type that says, I'm not going to, I don't, these, these types of jurors are not good for us. These types of jurors are good for us. You know, I don't want teachers. I don't want social workers, you know, or, in, or do you use your gut feeling? Do you need to do any of that when you're doing your jury selection? All right. Well, I will say, and I, and, you know, I used to, my mother was my mother was a teacher, and of course she has passed for a long time. But I always used to tell her when she was alive that I didn't want her on my jury, and I didn't want any teacher on my jury. And uh, and of course she would argue. Of course she would argue with me, which is precisely why I didn't want her on. <laughs> so, uh, but teachers aside, I'd say there's no one really that uh, I put in that category. And again, uh, because you know when. When the process starts, you don't really know where this is going to wind up, and i I don't like to be I don't like to be saddled with a lot of preconceived ideas about how that particular person is never going to be helpful. If I we don't have enough time to go through the jury makeup and in the Perry case, but but I guarantee you this: without giving you any specific information, you watch some of the trial, and I don't know how much you know this, but you know, of those twelve people. I believe that eight of them, eight or nine of them were under the age of 30. Interesting. Okay. And the four person on that jury was a 19 year old college freshman. And uh, that was a 12 zero defense verdict. That's, so that's very just, interesting. You know, uh, anyone that's listening to this that tries cases knows is now scratching their head and saying, hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I think that's interesting, right? Because we've heard uh, the millennials catch a bad rap, right? Of being the ones when you look at nuclear verdicts, it's always, it's the millennials, it's the millennials, but Correct. obviously that's not true from what you're saying. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Well, Jim, I'm going to wrap this up, but I got to ask the most important question, Michigan or Michigan state. Seven years in Ann Arbor, it's Michigan all the way. Uh, <laughs> this whole, this whole podcast is now falling apart. Uh, well, I won't, I won't harass you too much. My, my wife is in the, all my in-laws are all Michigan uh, people. So I'll, I'll, you're in good company there at least, but. You uh, got to root for Michigan, Steve. We're, we're, we're one of two big 10 teams left in the tournament. at this. I point. know, I know, but it's hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jim. Well, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to ha come on the podcast. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, if they have questions, any additional questions need to get a hold of you for, you know, any future cases, how do they get a hold of you? I uh, call my number 
My cell phone number is 248-854-5070, jfeeney at dykema.com. Excellent. Jim, once again, I appreciate you coming on, uh, you know, sharing your wisdom and experience and, and helping people hopefully learn to, you know, get some defense verdicts going forward in the future. So this has been another edition of Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. We'll see you next time. <music>